going to get into God's Word this morning, and we're starting a new series called Reasons for the Season. Not reason for the season, reasons for the season. There are many reasons. Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Surely it was not for the purpose of a national holiday, or decorating evergreen trees, or eating candy canes. It was about Jesus carrying out his God-given mission on earth. And so over the next four weeks together, we're going to reflect on scriptures that enhance our understanding of why Jesus came and how his coming impacts our lives. Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. I'm going to invite you in this place and those at home to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Just two verses. Pastor Kim, she made you almost read a whole chapter of scripture. I said, not today. Mm -mm. We're going to read two verses. This is good. That's why they like me more than they like you. (laughs) Just kidding. I always say when we teach a class together, I said, she's going to give you homework. I'll never give you homework. You all know. Amen. I heard amen. Praise the Lord. Glory. Hallelujah. Okay. We're just reading two verses from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. The scripture is on the screen behind me. Let's read together in one voice. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you have a plan and you have a purpose. That you sent your son, Father, to earth. That is part of a plan. That was not a backup plan. That was not plan B. That was plan A from the very beginning. And so, God, we recognize there was sin in the world, even at the moment of creation. Though it was good, the devil was around. And, Lord, you decided from the very beginning that there would be a salvation plan through your son, Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you for that plan because we have been changed because of that plan. Father, today I pray that you would teach us how to value and appropriately administer the law of God in our lives. Lord, we know your law is the word, and we know that it's in the Old Testament. But sometimes, Lord, the law can be uh, holding us back from the grace you have extended already to us. So help us not to go back into the law. Help us to live in your grace. Father, I declare my need for you this morning in preaching the word of God. Every time I stand on this platform, I'm reminded of the heavy and weighty responsibility of preaching your word. And I ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for this task, because I've never wanted to do it without your strength. So I ask for your anointing and your power and your clarity of mind. We ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Well, we must start today by asking ourselves, what is the law? And the law was the collection of commandments given by God to Moses for the Israelites. Now, we are familiar with the Ten Commandments. These were etched in stone by the very finger of God for the first time in Exodus 31, verse 18. And then chiseled by Moses the second time in Exodus 34, 28. And this was the very constitution of God's covenant with his chosen people, Israel. 
The law was not limited to the Ten Commandments, but was also considered to be a collection of books. It was the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, we call this the Torah. And then in Greek, it is called the Pentateuch, two words for the very five books of the Bible. The Ten Commandments could be further detailed by specific laws that were found throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these laws could be classified as moral laws or social laws, food laws or purity laws, feast laws, sacrifice and offering laws, priesthood laws, and tabernacle laws. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves today is how much of the Old Testament must we uphold? It's probably a question you've asked yourself as you read the Bible, you recognize the history, the Jewish history of the Old Testament, and yet the Christian history of the New Testament. How much of the Old Testament are we supposed to hold on to? All of it? Some of it? None of it? Well, the Ten Commandments in particular have a universality to them. There's universal principles in there. They are applicable to believers in all places and in all times. They lack specificity, but they have a general applicability. So all other laws can be considered principles. Okay, I know what you might be thinking today. The first thing you think of when you think of the law is tithes, money. One of the popular questions I hear as a pastor is, do we still need to tithe? Or can we put that 10% right back into our pocket? Thank you. You know, tithing was a command in the Old Testament. Tithing is not exactly or explicitly commanded in the New Testament, but offerings were collected among the New Testament community. The reason why we encourage both tithes and offerings at WPA is because we see it as a biblical principle that helps us keep God first. It keeps us away from the love of money, and it keeps us always in a posture of faith that God provides for us. I don't provide for myself. God bestows blessing in my life, and I recognize he's a good giver. Amen? According to Romans 6.14, the Apostle Paul, he explained that you are not under the law, but under grace. Isn't that good news? You're not under the law. Great news for you today. Just in case you thought you were. You're not under the law. You are under grace if you are in Christ Jesus. Now, we are not Jews who are under the law. We are Christians, so we're under grace. This temptation is there to be saved by grace, but still try to live under the law. We do this to ourselves so often. We become legalistic and rule-bound. You need to do this, this, and this in order to be found in God's community. This kind of pressure is the same kind of pressure that the Galatian believers experienced from their Jewish opponents called Judaizers. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 7, the Apostle Paul, he described those who promoted such a theology as people who tried to pervert the gospel of Christ. Those who try to push forward a theology of the law upon people are actually perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're perverting the very thing that is all about grace. For us, this does not mean then discarding the Old Testament. I am not telling you to take scissors and cut out all the pages of the Old Testament out of your Bible. That's not what we're saying here. 
It means understanding the New Testament in light of and as the fulfillment of the Old Testament requirements of the law. So this morning, I want to explore the impact of Jesus because Jesus changes everything about the law as we see it in Scripture. First point this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Under the law. Under the law. We see this in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, where it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. The law had one task, one singular task, and it was to expose human beings that were already in relationship with God to their sin in their life. Knowing that they were prone to sin, God gave the Israelites the law as an accountability system to form their moral and ethical conscience. This way, there was no guessing about what was right and what was wrong. God gave the law to say, this is what is right and wrong. Don't do this, do this. Do this, don't do that. The law communicated God's standards, not worldly standards. So God's law is different from the ways of this world and how they govern themselves and their behavior. And just because certain things are acceptable to the world does not mean that they're acceptable to God. But you might say today, Pastor, I have something called rights. And I say, yes, you do. God bless you. But here's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 10, 23, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, addressing our rights. And he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. In a world of rights, we learn that it is ultimately God who has told us what is right, what is good for our souls. So here's the question. Can you and I become righteous by living under the law? And the passage explains it to us and gives us the answer as well. The answer to this question is a firm no. It's a big no. Yes would imply that our right standing before God is based on our works, on our merit, that what we do earns God's love of us. But that's not how it works. An overemphasis on works and on merit, friends, that leads to legalism. And legalism is like a poison. In Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus warned, he said, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is the yeast of these individuals and of these groups? It is legalism. Like yeast, once it is introduced, legalism spreads and affects the entire batch of dough. And Jesus, he was so repelled by such people and by such teaching. Yes, he loved them, but he was repelled by the way they had twisted them. The reality is that we are often telling Christians to first become Jews. This is our mistake. We're saying, you need to do this, do this, do this, then only can you be accepted into the kingdom of God. 
In Galatians 5.1, the apostle Paul told Christians, he said, stand firm. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery that the law is actually some form of slavery. The believers in Galatia who were converts from Judaism to Christianity were being oppressed by their Jewish agitators all around them. And they were being told to return to that which they had once been freed from. And some were enslaving themselves again under the law. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this because then only will people accept me. As Christians who were really never under the law. Do not put yourself under the law again. Instead, the Apostle Paul clarified whom Christians voluntarily put themselves under in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, my friends, you are not under the law. And I think that's a wonderful text for us Pentecostals because we are people who are led by the Spirit. We are people who follow the promptings and the voice of the Holy Spirit. We are not under the law because we have the Spirit. We're not slaves anymore. We're Spirit-anointed people. Second point this morning is break the law. Break the law. We find this in James chapter 2, verse 10. And it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. It's a hard text to grapple with, the reality of this. You can try and try and try, but just make one mistake and you've ruined it all. You know, part of the way we justify our sin is by categorizing our sin. Maybe you've done this before. We view some sins as greater sins and we view other sins as lesser sins. Maybe you remember a series that I preached a few years ago on respectable sins. Which, all, which are all about the subtle sins that we deem permissible because we think they are lesser sins. Another way to see sin as, is as all sin being equal sin. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin or a small sin. It doesn't matter if it's a major or a minor sin. All sin is equal sin. Now, I believe that to be true except for one case. In Matthew 12, 31, we are told about an unforgivable sin. The scripture says, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. So to say all sin is equal, sin is only 99% true. So here is Jesus, and Jesus takes things a little bit further in the Sermon on the Mount. In many ways, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, is really the main point of the entire discourse that spans from Matthew chapter 5 all the way to Matthew chapter 7. To break one law is to break the entire law. In one word, or by one action, we become lawbreakers. In Romans 3.10, the Apostle Paul recalled, there is no one righteous, not even one. Friends, that's all of us. There's no one righteous in this room, not even one. In Romans 3.23, he added, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and we've fallen short. 
And if these verses are true, how do we even stand a chance? I want you to know today, my friends, that the law was not meant to be the solution. The law was never meant to be a solution. I was talking to a close friend of mine, and we were talking theologically for a moment, and he said, you know, I was talking to a person in my church, and he said, did, did God make a mistake? Was the, the law, was there some issue with the law? We can never fully uphold it. So did he set us up for a failure? No, he didn't do that. There was already sin in the world. Law was a way for us to identify our sin, to bring definition to our sin. But the law was never meant to be the solution. It was meant to expose our sin, and the Pharisees thought they were right in enforcing the law upon people, but they did not understand the role it played in the whole story of God's redemption plan. They were just looking at the part. They were not looking at the whole. The law served the purpose of accentuating the sin problem. It gave a temporary solution, but not a permanent solution. The breaking of the law always required the shedding of blood. The blood of an animal sacrifice would only satisfy the wrath of God until another person or another group of people sinned again. And then again. Another sacrifice. And again, another sacrifice. Just think about it for a moment. How much blood was shed for the sins of just God's people alone. Here's what the law was intended to do. The law was intended to bring us low. It is not at our highest point, my friends, but it's at our lowest point that we finally see ourselves for who we really are. We realize that we are unable to keep the law perfectly. And you can be on a sinless streak, but eventually, my friend, you will stumble and you will fall. Therefore, none of us can boast in and of ourselves. Jesus' teaching publicly exposes the pride of the Pharisees. They think they're keeping the law by enforcing the law on other people. And while they're doing that, pride creeps into their own lives. They don't see it. The law was meant to bring people to their knees. The law is meant to bring people to the place of surrender. God, I can't do this on my own. I'm tired. I'm weak. I just can't do it anymore. I need to stop striving. Because the law points us to our need for the Lord. Oh, I need you, Lord. I need you. Thirdly, today, you can write down these words, fulfilled the law of Christ, fulfilled the law. We see this in Romans 10, verse 4. And I love this passage. I think the choice of words is just awesome. Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the culmination He brings it all together. He fulfills it perfectly. He brings it to its end, the culmination. As we established earlier, the law was considered to be the first five books of the Old Testament. And Jesus did not only fulfill the law, but it also says that he fulfilled the prophets. Now, the Old Testament can be further broken down into three categories, which are law, prophets, And writings and the books of the Old Testament fall into those categories. Apostle Peter 
he expressed his high value on the prophecy of Scripture, on the words of the prophets, in 2 Peter chapter 121, where he says, Though human, these prophets, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why do we listen to the voice of the prophets? Because they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophets spoke God's words to his people, and they held God's people accountable to what? His law. That was the whole purpose of the prophets. Come back to God's love. Come back into right relationship with him. Don't break your covenant with God. One way to divide the prophets is to go major minor prophets, mainly based on the size of those books. There were four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Another way to divide the prophets are into their former and latter categories, mainly based on chronological history. We can look at the former prophets, which includes the books of Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And then the latter prophets, which are all those major and minor prophets. And here's the thing. All prophets prophesied to their present generation and their local events. But there were some prophets that prophesied not only to their present generation and events, but also to future generations and events. These were messianic prophecies, and Jesus himself was the fulfillment of them because he was a greater prophet, and he was a greater priest, and he was a greater king. When the Father sent the Son into our world, he sent him to fulfill what was written in Scripture. In Romans 8, 3-4, the Apostle Paul wrote, listen to these words today. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the flesh. To the Spirit. This is the reason why Jesus sent his Son to deal with sin. In a similar way, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, the Apostle Paul wrote the words But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Friends, can I remind you today that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came to accomplish the requirements of the law and to redeem us who were under the law, or really the Jews who were under the law. In Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, Jesus, he ushered in a new paradigm for us to follow. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then catch this. 
all the law and the prophets hang or hinge on these two commandments. As you can see, Jesus does not negate the law. Jesus does not discount the law. He fulfilled the law so that he could reinterpret the law. And he makes it much more easy for us. He takes it from focusing on 613 commandments of do's and do nots. And he distills it into two simple commands. Love God, love others. If you do those, if you do those two things, you'll do everything. I've made it easy for you to serve the Lord, your God. Because I fulfill the law. As we conclude this morning and the worship team returns back to the platform... To the Jews, Moses was the most important person in Israeli history. He was used to deliver God's people from their bondage in Egypt. He was chosen to be the recipient and the implementer of God's law. In 2 Corinthians 3, 13 to 16, the Apostle Paul explained why there is still a veil upon those who cling to the old covenant. By saying this, I'm speaking of our brothers and sisters who are Jews, people in Israel, people all over the world who follow Judaism, they only hold to the old covenant. The scripture says we are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant, when the Old Testament is read. Even to this day, when the law is read, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Do you understand this today? As I think about my brothers and sisters in Israel, Israel is a beautiful country. I hope that every one of you someday get to go there. Hopefully it won't be war and torn for all those years to come. But when you go there and you're in the Holy Land, you see God's people and you see them, they are so close and yet they're so far. They're almost there. They believe the Old Testament, good for them. I'm so glad they do. But they miss it because the Messiah is right there in front of them and they can't see it. They choose not to see it. They live with veiled faces. Their hearts are veiled. You know, as we give financial support to this cause in Israel, I'm so glad we can do this. And you need to hear the other two initiatives because this is not the only other, the only initiative. There's, the second one is just as important as the first. You'll hear it next Sunday. I want you to understand we're not just sending financial support. By partnering with King of Kings, we are also sending the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what really matters to me. We could give to anybody, but I want to give to a person, to a church, to an entity, an organization that is preaching and declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. Repent and turn to him today. Take off the veil off your face and see Jesus for who he really is. That's my prayer for them because they're so close, yet they're so far. So we don't just give resources. We don't just give finances. We send the gospel. 
through our love. It was Jesus who changed paradigms for us, paradigms for obedience. And this was marked by the division of the Old Testament from the New Testament, that the Apostle John said, and I believe he said it most clearly, he said in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Man. Moses was just a man. Moses was a prophet. He was awesome, no doubt about it. He was great. He was awesome in the Lord his God. But Jesus is God. Jesus is greater than Moses. And that's what our Jewish brothers and sisters need to see. Jesus is greater than Moses. The arrival of Jesus transitions Holy Scripture. And it says, from Judaism all the way into Christianity, from law all the way to grace, that Jesus is the transition point of Scripture. And so one of the several reasons, again, there's not just one, there's multiple, why Jesus came was to fulfill the law so that we might finally, truly live. Friends, today, don't let legalism bound you up. Don't make it difficult for people to come to know Jesus. It is is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not something you've done. It's not a work of your own. This is the work. This is the gift of God. So if you don't know Jesus in this place, my prayer today is that you would understand the reason why Jesus came, that one of them is to fulfill the law because you could never fulfill it even if you tried. You'd never be able to do it. So he did it for you so that with freedom, you could just live out those two simple commandments, love God, love others. That's all you need to do. So Jesus came to fulfill the law that we might live the abundant life. Let's pray.